Well, good evening. It's just wonderful to see all the smiling faces, to see everyone out on a Wednesday night, to hear from God's Word, to worship together. That's wonderful. And it really is an absolute privilege to be able to be here with you all tonight. Uh, as Caleb mentioned, this is not my first time preaching here, but it is the first time in a very long time. It's been at least 10 years, I think, since I was here last, so I certainly thank you, Caleb, for inviting me out. Definitely uh, wonderful to be here with you all. And again, as Caleb mentioned earlier, our text for this evening is Psalm 36. Psalm 36. So if you would, uh, please turn there with me in your Bibles. It'll be helpful for you to be able to follow along as we go through. It is a relatively short psalm, but it does pack a powerful message. Now, I'm pretty confident that the majority of you here will probably not disagree with me when I tell you that our society today is in pretty bad shape. Would we agree with that? Our society really is, is in pretty bad shape. And uh, in the name of tolerance, anyone with a differing opinion is silenced, right? Um, political division in our country, I think, is probably worse uh, than it's been since maybe the Civil War. And in some cases, it's maybe even uh, worse now in some ways. Violent crime is up su uh, substantially in all our major cities uh, some of you may have seen this story um, a few days back. Actually, I believe it was last Thursday night in New York City here. Uh, there was a, a woman who was standing outside in a, a neighborhood, and a woman gets out of a car, walked casually up to her, pulled a gun and pointed it at her head in point-blank range, shot her in the head. When she collapsed, shot her a couple more times, and then casually walked right back to her car and drove away as calm as could be. Uh, this happened right here in the city. This past Saturday in Portland, Oregon, a masked and hooded mob in black fatigues attacked a Christian prayer and worship event in a local park. They threw flash bombs. They threw rotten eggs. They destroyed the sound system that they were using to have their, uh, their worship service there. They threw equipment in the river. They sprayed the pastor and others there with mace, and they were yelling things all the while, such as, where is your God now? And we look at stories like this and we say, what in the world is going on? What is the cause of this kind of turmoil, upheaval, and let's face it, evil? The experts tell us that these problems in our society can be dealt with just with, if we would only educate people more, uh, if we would deal with the perceived injustice in our society, if we would bring greater equality, uh, they think if everyone has enough and no one has too much, well then there'll be no more reason for any violence or theft and those things would just go away. Now we should know as believers that that's what we call a pipe dream. We should know as believers that is not at all the correct view of the issue. That is nowhere near the solution. Because we know as believers that the problem that we have in our culture is not something outside of ourselves. The problem we have in our culture comes from within the heart of man. David makes this really clear here in Psalm 36 and he points us to the real solution, the only real solution to this overwhelming problem. So if you would, before we dive into this text, if you would just pray along with me, just asking the Holy Spirit to help us. 
Lord, I just pray as we come into this word, as we dig into this psalm, this very rich passage from your word, we just pray, Lord, that you would speak through it, Lord, that you would, um, that you would help us to understand the issues in our own hearts and how we need to submit them to you, that by the blood of Christ, uh, we can be free from uh, that power and penalty of sin. We just pray, Lord, that you would speak tonight, that you would hide your word in our hearts, Lord, that uh, we would be transformed from the inside out, that the problem with our heart would be dealt with uh, by the, the gospel, by the blood of Christ. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea, I think, of this psalm, if we could kind of summarize it, is that you and I and everyone else around us are horrible sinners, but God is a wonderful Savior, and He's full of steadfast love. And we'll see that here as we work our way through this psalm. David starts by putting our issue on full display. He puts it on display right in front of us. And so we see at the, the first few verses of this psalm, he, he points out the darkness of man, the darkness of the heart of man. You can see it right in the beginning of verse 1. David says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Now what's interesting about that, uh, that first part of that verse is there's actually some variation among different manuscripts that we have, uh, the different ancient manuscripts we have. In many of the Hebrew manuscripts, it's actually worded this way. Very slight difference. It says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. And we're not going to go off on a tangent about textual criticism and, and what the correct wording might be or why. But if that is what's intended, if that's what David intended to say there, if he intended to say uh, transgression speaks to the wicked in my heart, then he's not limiting these statements that he's about to make to the wicked out there. But he recognizes that he is also speaking of his own heart outside of Christ. Certainly we know David was quite aware of his own sinfulness. We don't need to work any, uh, look any further than Psalm 51. Of course, the wonderful psalm where David expresses the, uh, his, his heartfelt repentance after his horrific sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. He writes in, in verse 3 of Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We all hear the voice of sin, and we all can be tempted, even as believers, to go our own way. That temptation, Scripture tells us quite clearly, originates in our hearts. The book of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 makes that quite clear. It says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we give in to that temptation, we're giving in ultimately to unbelief. We don't like to think that. We don't like to think when we sin that we're, we're ultimately giving in to unbelief, but that's exactly what is happening. We give in to sin because in that moment, at that time, when that temptation is presented before us, we think that the, the, the pleasure that that sin promises is more real to us than the promises of God. And for unbelievers, of course, having their fleshly desires fulfilled is more real than any, not only any pleasure that may come from God, but any potential future judgment that may come because of their sin. We see this in the rest of verse 1. As David writes, There is no fear of God 
before his eyes. I honestly believe that is probably the greatest issue we have in our culture today. And it's even a humongous issue within the church. We have no fear of God. John MacArthur said uh, in a sermon some years ago, I just happened to see it recently, he said that a huge issue in our culture today is that people have become extremely comfortable with sin. People are, have become very used to sinning with very little or maybe even no apparent consequences. Churches rarely practice church discipline. And society at large, where uh, they used to have kind of a cultural stigma placed on things like adultery or pornography, really not as much anymore. People used to understand that homosexuality and cross-dressing were unnatural deviations of healthy sexuality, but now we have an entire month dedicated to celebrating these things. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, the word that's translated fear here is not the typical word that's used in the phrase fear of the Lord. In, in Psalm chapter 9, verse 10, when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, that is a different Hebrew word there. That word kind of gives the idea of reverence. When we talk about us having a fear of the Lord as believers, that is the idea of having a reverence, the fear of offending someone who is highly revered. But here in Psalm 36, it's a different Hebrew word there. It's, it's the word gives more the sense of dread or terror. He's saying the wicked have no terror. They have no fear, no dread of God and his judgment. David elaborates on this idea in verse 2. He says, For he, meaning the wicked, flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. What David's saying is that in his pride... The wicked person deludes himself into, again, thinking there are no consequences for my sin. They don't believe there will be any judgment. Or maybe they believe in God. Maybe they believe that there is a such thing as a judgment, but they minimize their sin and think, well, I have done enough good. On balance, I am good, so therefore there will be no consequence for my sin because I've done enough. I'll be accepted in the judgment because I've done enough good to balance out or to outweigh the wicked that may be in my life. We're told in Hebrews 9, 27, that it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Chapter 10, verse 30 of Hebrews, it says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the wicked don't believe this to be true. And so they celebrate and they flaunt their rebellion. They shake their fist at God and say, you can't tell me who I am or what I can do. But it doesn't always begin there. Sin leads us frequently down a gradual decline. It's a slow fade. Since there's, so, there's little to no focus on or really no understanding of there being a future judgment, the sinful desires of people's hearts are allowed to grow and to influence their behavior. Notice in verse 3, it says, The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. 
he has ceased to act wisely and do good. The thoughts that they've been having begin to escape through their mouth, spreading lies in order to gain whatever it is that they desire. And the thoughts and the speech then lead to a change in their behavior. The fact that it says that the wicked here have ceased to act wisely and to do good tells us that they had at some point in the past acted in some way wisely and done at least some good, but they no longer see the need. Their attention turns more inward, focused on their own fleshly desires. And the progression continues in verse 4, which says, He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So they've graduated from just ceasing to do good and spreading a few lies to actively planning trouble even while in bed at night. They're continually planning and plotting for evil. They are proudly embracing evil. There's a quote from James Stewart. And when I say James Stewart, I don't mean the guy who played George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, There is a Scottish preacher and author. He passed away back in 1990. And that James Stewart said this of a person who gets caught up in sin. He said, every time he sins, he is making himself less capable of realizing what sin is, less likely to realize that he is a sinner. For the ugly thing, the really diabolical thing about sin is that it perverts a man's judgment. It stops him from seeing straight. This is the state of humanity apart from God. Paul uses an excerpt from this psalm in making his case for the depravity of man in Romans chapter 3. And unfortunately, and again, I'm sure you see this around you as well, even Christians are influenced greatly by the surrounding culture and far too often fail to take sin seriously. It's laughed off. It's no big deal. They presume upon the grace of God. And and I, I can promise you, while I'm speaking this out to you, it's hitting me as well. So after giving us this clear view of the darkness of the human heart, praise God, David doesn't leave us here. He moves on to show us the reality of the light of God. We have an incredible darkness that is in the human heart, but God brings the light. David contrasts that light of God with the darkened state of our own human hearts that are left to themselves. So he begins to to kind of bring a focus on some of God's attributes here in these next couple of verses, to bring them to the forefront And if any of you here are a fan of the band Third Day, verses 5 and 6 might sound familiar to you. Their song, Your Love, O Lord, is based on on these verses. Verse 5 starts out, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Now, depending on your translation, it may say faithful love or even mercy instead of steadfast love. The, the Hebrew word there is uh, the word chesed, and it, it's the same word we see in verse 7 and in verse 10. Uh, some translations render these words differently, but they're all three the same word, and this steadfast love is God's covenant love. 
And David clearly considers God's covenant love to be of prime importance here as he's penning this psalm. He mentions it three times in these few verses. And we see again that David states that God's steadfast covenant love extends to the heavens. Now maybe in your younger days, maybe when you were a child, maybe a parent or some other relative may have expressed their love to you in some form like saying, I love you to the moon and back or something along those lines. That's a, a nice way of kind of expressing that their love goes beyond what would be expected, beyond uh, what would be the normal expectation of love and goes all the way to the moon and then even back again. And David's kind of giving a similar kind of expression here by saying that his love extends to the heavens. If you wanted to make a gratuitous uh, Toy Story reference, you could say his love extends to infinity and beyond. Of course, the Apostle John uses love as God's identifying attribute in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. He says that God is love. David then, at the end of verse 5, turns to another of God's great attributes. He turns to speak of his faithfulness. And he says that God's faithfulness is to the clouds. Again, that's just another poetic way of saying pretty much the same thing uh, that the verse before was saying, verse 5, that it is, uh, it is another way of saying to the heavens, essentially. It's not a ranking system. It's not, well, the heavens is really far and the clouds is slightly less. He's perfectly faithful. His faithfulness extends forever. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that if we are faithless, as we so often are, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Alexander McLaren, another great Scottish pastor, rightly pointed out that any talk of God's faithfulness has to involve a focus on his word. And he said that only a God who has spoken and given us promises can be ever thought of as faithful. His faithfulness is measured by his word. And God has promised wonderful Things in his word. Just to give a couple of examples, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a fantastic promise. Romans 8.28, one that we all run to when we're in the midst of trouble, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Another one we run to often, rightfully so, 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And of course, the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. His righteousness, David writes, is like the mountains of God. Now, mountains are, I think you'll agree, for the most part, immovable. Now, I do realize that Jesus said, with the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell a mountain to go jump in the sea and it would do it. But generally, mountains pretty much stay in the same place. They don't move. And that's the, the truth and the point here about God's righteousness. Mountains of God is probably a reference to the highest mountains. Several translations render it that way. And the point is, God is never going to waver from doing what is right. In every situation, he's going to be fair and just. He's not going to be moved from that. We see also that God's judgments here are said to be like the great deep, or as some translations have it, like the deepest sea. God doesn't make shallow, short-sighted decisions. He sees everything all the way to the end. He takes everything into account, and he declares the very end from the beginning. Now, we often don't understand what he's trying to accomplish in any given situation. We may at times struggle to see the, the good that he's working out, but God tells us in Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We're also told in Proverbs 3, 5, to trust the Lord with all our heart and not to lean on our own understanding. We, we trust and we, we know that God is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and he is good. And this combination should allow us to, to rest in him even when we don't understand. And let's face it, that is often. In fact, we're told that the peace of God surpasses understanding. Even when we don't understand, we can have peace because that is the God that we serve, who is sovereign, all-powerful, and good. He knows what is best. He desires to do what is best, and no one can stop him from bringing it about. And that truth should bring us peace. And not only this, but Davis, David gives us the greatest truth here, the fact that God is a Savior. He's a Savior. And for people who are steeped in darkness deep in our heart, that is what we need. We need a Savior. Of course, salvation comes in its fullness in the person and work of Christ. If you look at the end of the verse, it says, Man and beast you save, O Lord. You know, you may think, wait a minute. He saves beasts? I don't remember that from Sunday school. The idea here is that all of creation, all of creation is going to be freed from the curse of sin that originated in the fall all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 19 through 22, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. 
But at the center of the redemption of creation is our, our own salvation. God saves us in and through the person of Christ. And he saves us from his righteous judgment against sin. Look at verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. What are we taking refuge from? Not, Not the troubles of this world, although that may be true, but ultimately we're taking refuge from the wrath of God. Jesus uses similar language in his lament over Jerusalem that we see in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jerusalem at the time of Christ was not willing to take refuge in the shadow of his wings, but that is the only safe place to be. The picture here that Jesus is painting is of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings for protection. And a hen will protect her chicks even if it costs her own life. There's an amazing story that came out of World War II where in the aftermath of a U.S. napalm attack in Japan, these incredible firebombs that were dropped, a man reportedly found a hen that had been burned to death by this bombing, but underneath its wings there were chicks that were still alive perfect illustration of what Christ does for us. He shields us and protects us from the wrath of God even while taking the fullness of it upon himself. And it cost him his life. But praise God, he has risen from the dead and death no longer has any hold on him and there's no more wrath left for us. It was all poured out on Christ. But beyond, as if we needed anything else, because we don't. But beyond our salvation from God's wrath, there are other blessings that we gain that David tells us here for those who are uh, having faith in God ultimately expressed now in the new covenant in Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 8. It says, "They, they feast on the abundance of your house. He's saying full satisfaction is found in him. God has an abundant supply to meet all of our needs. The end of verse 8 says, You give them drink from the river of your delights. There's joy to be found as we're reconciled fully to our Creator. And this provision and this joy begins in our lives now. And it comes into its fullness when we one day will stand in His presence and see Him face to face. David goes on to say, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. This points right forward to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Listen to what it says in John chapter 1, verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ. But the sad truth is not everyone loves the light. John 3.19 says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, 
because their works were evil. How do you respond to the light of Christ? How will you respond to the light of Christ? The light reveals what was previously hidden. Reveals the depths of our wickedness. It reveals how desperately we need forgiveness. How desperately we need to be pulled up out of our own pit. But people in their pride often would rather keep these things hidden. They don't want to think about these realities. They want to keep up the self-deception. Now, you've probably had those times when, you know, you're laying in, in bed. Maybe you've, uh, you know, been in bed for a while and uh, the room has been dark and then someone comes in and flips the light on and there's that, oh, there's that initial pain, that kind of, oh, my goodness, that's too bright. When we come from the darkness and the light is revealing the truth, it can be at times painful. And unfortunately, some will take that opportunity to retreat back into the darkness. But in the light is truth and life. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And after presenting kind of the condition of the human heart outside of of Christ outside of fellowship with God and then presenting who God is and the character that he presents and the fact that he is a savior and ready to save. David ends with a prayer. And really as he ends with this prayer, we kind of realize that he's presented kind of a choice before us. He's praying for those who know God, for those who are walking in the light, and then he proclaims the ultimate destiny of those who remain in the darkness. And that ultimately presents a choice to us. Are we going to go into the light? Or are we going to remain in the darkness? Or if we are in the light, are we going to continue to walk in the light as he is in the light? Look at verses 10 through 12. We see David's prayer. He writes, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright at heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. We see here a, a stark difference between those who know God and those who do not, those who David calls evildoers. David's praying for God's people, those who have been reconciled to him through faith in Christ. Of course, David's still looking forward to the Messiah's coming. We now looking back to the cross. But David is praying for believers that God would continue to love and care for us. And then he prays for himself, but with application for us as well, that nothing would drive us away from God. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 puts it this way. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And notice he's addressing that to brothers. Take care that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. David then closes his prayer by proclaiming the destiny of those who remain in the darkness. 
He says they lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And of course, the New Testament gives much greater clarity on what this entails. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, just for one example, puts it like this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the question that needs to be asked as we close, once again, are you in the darkness or are you in the light. And if you are in the darkness, are you going to remain in the darkness? Or are you going to allow the light of Christ to shine on you, to reveal your desperate need for a Savior? And the great news is there is one ready to save. There is one ready to save. We are told another great promise in the Scripture. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you remain in the darkness? Or will you come into the light and run to Christ for refuge and protection? He is a God of steadfast love. He is a God who is faithful. He is a God who always does what is right. He is a God who has a purpose for you. He is a God who saves. Run to him today. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you once again for your word, for this little psalm and just how much power there is in it. What hope we can find. We, we see the desperate state of humanity steeped in sin, but we see the hope that we find in you through the sacrifice of Christ. You are a God who saves. We thank you so much for that gift of the gospel, for the reality that if we turn from our sin and trust in Christ and Christ alone, we can be forgiven. Our sin cast as far as the east is from the west. We can have eternity with you. We just pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice that does not know you, that they would call on the name of the Lord even now. For the rest of us, that we would be drawn closer, that we would cast aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, that we would run with endurance the race that's set before us. We just thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's thank our brother for ministering to us. Forgot. Um, at this time, we have a few minutes to do some questions and answers. So if there's anything that was said that you were really encouraged by and you'd like to make a mention of that, or if there's anything that you want to know more about, or anything that, uh, that you heard that you think that uh, you'd like a little clarification on, this is an excellent time for questions. Uh, and as we've often said, um, if you have anything else to share, snide remarks, uh, troubling events, this would be the time. Uh, let me start us off tonight just by saying, First of all, thank you. That's a really excellent way to exegete that text. And I love how you showed uh, beginning, this is how we all were. And then there's God. And if we trust in him, that's how we all end up there. And um, my question for you is, there are multiple times in uh, the sermon that you made a distinguishing statement between how believers relate to sin mm -hmm. and how unbelievers relate to sin. Yeah. Part of that is dealing with the salvation sure. where sin is forgiven, but in terms of the, the act of sinning, mm -hmm. um, can you just clarify and give a, a little bit of detail of what is the difference between the relationship of sin for those who are unsaved and then for those who yeah. are saved? Well, I, if, I, if I 
understand what you're getting at. I, I think the, the bottom line is, as we look at 1 John, right? 1 John is, is a book I think every believer needs to, to read and read over and over again. 1 John tells us what we are, who we are as believers and what we are to be like as believers. And I think, you know, when we recognize all of us are sinners, I sin all the time, uh, you know, in, in sins of omission and, and even sins of commission, but there's a big difference between falling into sin in, in a momentary thing and, and walking into sin and, and, and immersing yourself in sin. And I do think that there is a big difference there, at least should be, that is evidence if you are are, are, are continuing in sin, as First John puts it, in a habitual sin, unrepentant sin, that is evidence that you are not a believer. The Holy Spirit should be convicting us. One of the Holy Spirit's main, role, main roles is convicting us as believers of our sin, so therefore we should be casting it off. It should be um, something that we are putting to death actively, not, um, not making excuses for, if that Amen. makes sense. So we can do that if we're yes. saved. Amen. We cannot do that if we're not saved. That's correct. A- that is correct. So we're not slaves. Even the, good, even the good deeds we do as unbelievers, because they're not done for the glory of God, ultimately are, 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 are sinful. Amen. Yeah. Isaiah 64, 6. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Very good. Any thoughts, questions, concerns, troubling events, snide remarks, anything else that you'd <laughs> like to uh, share? Yes, sir, Gary. Mm. And uh, I always find that when I preach to myself, Jesus has sent you blood for that sin, to forgive me of my sin. And I, I feel that that's the Holy Spirit convicting me sure. to turn to Christ, not to dwell in sin, but I give it to Christ. He cleanses me Amen. This is First uh, John one nine. This is also uh, we're told to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Right. So, thoughts are going to come in. What do we do with those thoughts when they come in? Yeah. Even in, even in my old age, I still have thoughts that I We still battle against the flesh, brother. We, we still battle against the flesh. Gary, there's going to come a time when you no longer have sinful thoughts, and that's going to be when they put you in a box. And lower you into the ground. And that's how it is for all of us. Amen. We're going to... That's exactly Amen. right. The, the greatest battlefield for our sanctification is always going to be right here between our ears. Amen. And uh, Amen. God is gracious that he's going to purify us Amen. so that when we're in heaven, that's all gone. Amen. That one of the great joys of heaven is that we'll never, ever again have to experience Amen. anything to do with sin. It's gone. Amen. So that's going to be joy. Amen. Amen. Uh, any other thoughts, questions? Yes, sir. Is it an older simplification to say that a, an, a believer cannot be at peace or happy in sin, but an unbeliever can be at peace and happy in sin? It, it, it may be oversimplifying, but, not, but, it, but I would accept it. I mean, I think, I think that's... We should never be... Let's just put it this way. If we are... If we, are we should never... Let's just... To say the way you put it, we should never be comfortable in our sin. If we are comfortable in our sin, for example, if we, if we are going to someone in, in a church discipline type issue, we know that they're involved in some sin, and there is no sense of remorse whatsoever, no, you know, then there is no sign of life uh, going on there, which is why you ultimately have to say, you know, we're turning you over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You know, yeah. 
I think one of those verses that scared me a lot when I was reading them was what you mentioned. If anyone goes on sinning, he has neither known God mm. or seen God. Yeah. Um, that's terrifying because mm -hmm. that's all of us, right? We go on sinning. But like you said, that's, that's a pattern of consistent lifestyle sin. Yeah. And I realized at one point, that's a really hard thing to preach. And it's really hard to preach because what we want to do is we want to put a qualification word in there that the Bible doesn't do. And I think the reason it doesn't put a word like habitual there mm -hmm. or a word like a pattern or consistency there is because what we will naturally do ourselves is say, well, I only do this once a year or once a month, therefore it's not a habit or not a pattern. And so we'll kind of use that as an out because God is not accepting any of our sin. He's not Amen. comfortable with any of it. So, well, that's, that's you know, you, you all, but you also see the, the, the you know, the verses in, in First John also that say, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Right. And exactly. the truth is not in you, right? One so, seven, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very good. Any other questions before we move forward here tonight? Or encouragements? Yes. Thank you. Unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing, right? I mean, probably the vast majority of people we share the gospel with, if we ask them a question, they, they think they're a good person. They think that they're, you know, every, there's a lot of people, it's, I think it's still a majority, although it, it's going down, but there, I think there is still a majority of people that if you ask them if they believe in hell, they do believe it exists. Uh, they just don't think there's any chance in the world that they would ever go there, uh, even as a non-believer, because they're a good person. Um, but the, the really the only thing you can do is you got to look at you got to look at the standard that is set in Scripture. It's not a standard of better than Adolf Hitler. It's not better than you know whatever name you want to put in there. It's perfection. That is the standard that is given. Um, you know, Jesus talks about righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not, and that would have dumbfounded the people at the day, who saying, "Wait a minute, what?" It's, the standard is perfection. And if you have broken the law in any one point, you've broken all of it. You're guilty of all of it, right? So that's, that's kind of where you've got to go. If, you know, any sin, all sin has to be dealt with. You can't, you know, I, was, I gave an illustration once at my church that, you know, if, uh, if someone, if you were in, is sitting in a court case and, and there's a judge, you know, about to give the sentence to a guy who was just convicted of murder, and, uh, and, and, and at the, sent the judge is about to bring down the sentence, and he says, okay, before I give you your sentence, do you have anything you want to say in your own, you know, for your own uh, account? And he says, yeah, um, you know, I, I just want to say, judge, that, you know, yep, I was found guilty, admitted I did it, I, I did this murder, but really, on balance, that's a really small part of my life. It was just this one little thing that just happened on this one weekend, but, you know, I take care of old people, I do, you know, and listed all the positive things he did. Everyone would go ballistic if the judge said, wow, yeah, you know, that's true. I really, 
you, you're on balance, you've done a lot more, I'm going to let you go. They would go crazy because it's not justice. But yet when we think of ourselves and our sin, we, can, we try to make that leap that, that our crimes can be washed away because we've done good things. But it would never fly in a court of law. You know? So that would be where I would go with it. Uh, Gideon? Yeah. Well, I think the bottom line is if, if, I, never, if I never gave you a promise, if, if, you, if you knew of me but I never promised anything to you, you could never judge whether I was a faithful person or not because you're not, you have nothing to judge me by. So God has given us his word. He said, this is who I am. This is what I will do. And so we have that to hold him accountable. So we can say, okay, God said this. He didn't do this. Well, he's not. Well, no, we, we say, no, he lines up with everything he said. Therefore, we can say he is faithful. If there was never anything told of us, if he never told us anything, we would have nothing to measure it by. Excellent questions. Any other thoughts, questions? Praise God. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, well, I would say two, I would say two things. Uh, number one, um, this is, you know, as if we are actually in this, we should see it uh, over time because this is a mirror that we are to see. Uh, however, um, outside of that, this is why involvement in a, in a local church is so, so important because we can be on our own. And, and here's the thing. If we're not interacting with people, okay, if we're like isolating ourselves, and everything is, if we're in control, so to speak, of everything around us, and, and we only, um, you know, everything is done the way we want it to be done, our sin is not going to come out. But however, when we're in a mix of different people seeking to all, you know, work through this church thing together, and we rub up against people that rub us the wrong way, then it's going to come out. And, and when it comes out, hopefully either you will recognize it or others will help you to recognize it. That's why we need each other. We're spurring one another on, encouraging one another. Uh, that, that's why it's so important to have fellowship. Great question. It is um, a good question. I just want to share a story with you. Uh, one time we had an event when our, uh, we had like some kind of a festival over in Massapequa. And there was a guy who came in. We were, we were just having like inflatables and ice cream and whatever and just trying to get people to come talk to us. And one guy came in and his kid was in the bouncy house forever. So I had this opportunity where he was trapped next to me. Uh, to talk with him for a while. And I talked to him for maybe 20 minutes. And I asked him if he believed that he was a sinner. And he said, no, I've never sinned. And I said, do you know what sin is? And he said, yeah, it's when you do bad things that God doesn't like. Okay. Well, I talked to him for a while about the things he's done in his life. Cheated on his wife a bunch of times. Abandoned his wife and his kids. Ended up living with some, some lady. Uh, got in trouble. He was in and out of... Uh, he was very... Uh, involved with alcoholism, other issues. So you still think you've never sinned? I've never sinned. Never done anything wrong. And in his mind, I think he was, like, I don't think he was just trying to get me away from him. I think he believed that. And what that revealed to me even more clearly is just the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts the heart. And as much as I could show him logically 
The Bible says this is bad and evil. You have done this bad thing, evil thing, yet you think that you are good. It doesn't click with him because the Spirit of God has not yet done anything to his heart to say, this is bad, you are bad, you need salvation, you need forgiveness, you need to be right with God, you have no righteousness of your own, uh, you need his. So I think part of it uh, when we talk about um, when we talk about evangelism, like Francesco was asking, like we, we can't convince somebody of something in their mind unless the Spirit of God is going to do work there. But even in ourselves, one of the things that we need to realize is that God lives in us. Uh, God has made us His temple. And so when we are communing with God, we are very uncomfortable with our sin. And so I don't want to mysticize that. But what I mean by that is, like, like Dave mentioned, being in the Word, that's one of the ways we commune with God. We enjoy Him. We delight in Him. We experience Him. And as we do that, one of the things that happens is um, those things that we previously thought were acceptable in our life, we realize, oh, wait a minute. I have thought this was okay forever. I shouldn't say those words. I shouldn't think this way. I shouldn't act in those ways. And God begins to chip away at who we were so that we are conformed then to the image of Christ. So as much as we can say, like, how do we recognize that in ourselves? A truly saved person will recognize that more and more as they become closer with Christ because we just can't love the things that he hates and get away with it. It just makes us uncomfortable. Yeah, it's a good point to, to, to point out that, uh, you know, we're not sanctified perfectly the day we accept Christ. It is, it is progressive. Yeah. There are things that we don't realize are sin today, but that down the road it will, it will be made available, you know, made, uh, revealed to us. I remember um, uh, Paul Washer saying to a bunch of seminary students, he shared this story. He said, he was sharing with these seminary students, he said, I have some bad news for you guys as you're all preparing to go out into ministry. Um, 25 years from now, you're all going to be far more sinful than you are today. And what he meant by that was not that they weren't going to grow, but that they would become more and more conscious of their sin that's deep down as they continue to grow in Christ. I think that's definitely true. Thank you for the question, and thank you for being here today. I want to get to meet you after the service closes. Um, thank you all for being here tonight. Dave, thank you again for your ministry. Let's give him one more round of applause as he served us so well.